0: This is Dean Mathis, the Director of Capital Ministries Michigan. Last week, we looked at the prerequisites for qualification for a being of which there's only one in the universe who can be a go-between between humanity and Almighty God, dealing with the most important subject each of us has to deal with, which is how do we become right with God, and secure our eternal forgiveness and right standing with God on an eternal basis. And the individual that can do that, the being that can do that, is singularly unique and special indeed. And there are some prerequisites that we looked at last week, which only one being in the universe fulfills. And this week we will look at this being and how he fulfills them as set out by God himself. That person, that being, of course, being Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the text for today is Hebrews chapter 5, verses 5 through 10. And I've entitled these thoughts, The Qualified One. So we're going to begin by looking at verses 5 and 6. So also Christ, now that's the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. So also Christ or Messiah did not glorify himself so as to become high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, just as he also says in another passage, you're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So, the first four verses introduce the preconditions for qualification, and then We look now at these verses about how Jesus specifically meets these qualifications. Jesus, the Son of God, can only do what he can do. He meets the qualifications to do what only one being in the universe can do. And that is to be our go-between, our high priest, so to speak, to make atonement for our sins before God. In verses 5 and 6, which we just read, Jesus fulfills the first qualification in that he was divinely appointed. In chapter five, verse one, it says, quote, every high priest taken from among men is appointed. God appointed Aaron to be the high priest and to start the high priestly succession through his descendants. And in the same way, God has appointed Jesus. Then he quotes Psalm chapter two, verse seven. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Christ's priesthood relates to his divinity and his humanity and to his resurrection. Only a son of God could serve in the kind of priesthood that the author will describe later. So Jesus meets that qualification. He was appointed and it was prophesied that there would be a divine human being that would be able to fulfill this role. In verse 6, he quotes Psalm 110 verse 4. If you read Psalm 110, you will see that it is a messianic psalm actually celebrating what we know as the second coming of Christ, the second coming of the Messiah, the triumph of Messiah over all men. And part of that triumph is in 110 verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. One of the roles that the Messiah will play is doing That very job of being our go-between and our intercessor and our sacrifice. And then also being the one who can actually present that before God in his own person. The second thing he's going to point out is in verse 7. The second prerequisite and the second qualification that he meets is in verse 7. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. The second prerequisite and the second qualification that he had to meet was that he had to be human. Verse 7 says very clearly in the days of his flesh. So he was a human being. And this covers the entirety of his incarnation from conception to resurrection and beyond. A high priest had to be human. An angel can't be the high priest. So every high priest had to be human. And in this, he shows his humanity in that Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cryings and tears. Jesus prayed. He was a human being. He got his strength and his guidance from God the same way we do, by praying and receiving it by faith. Prayers are just conversations with God in general. Supplications are expressions of urgency. And it says he did it with loud crying. There were times when Jesus wept. It was a loud vocal outcry of one who is greatly disturbed. And if you remember, the Bible talks about how Jesus agonized over what was coming in the Garden of Gethsemane. That is a sample of what that kind of experience was in Jesus' life. And he had tears. And God heard him. Because he was perfectly obedient to God as a person and as also as the Son of God in everything that he did. And so God heard Jesus and answered his plea. It shows his humanity. In Luke chapter 22 verse 44, it talks about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane being in agony. He was praying fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling upon the ground. So Jesus experienced tremendous emotional agony and stress as he was dealing with what he was about to face by dying on the cross and it had a couple of dimensions one of course was physical death so he as a a man would be praying that he could be delivered out of physical death because he it was clearly prophesied that he would die but i think a second thing is also involved in that jesus realized that it was also going to involve spiritual death a separation between God the Father and God the Son, in an inexpressible agony that would come spiritually to Christ. In other words, he was going to take on himself the sins of all mankind of all time. And I think that's what was really distressing him. And he was also praying that he might be delivered from spiritual death. And both of those things happened on the cross. In the first three hours, he suffered physically for the sins of man. On the second three hours, when the darkness covered the earth, he suffered spiritually in a worldwide blackout when we do not know what was happening during those dark hours. Then in verse eight, it talks about the fact that the uh, third prerequisite to be the high priest is that he had to be compassionate. And Jesus was certainly that. In verse eight, it says, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things that he suffered. So Jesus was compassionate. He knows how it feels to be human. And he was obedient. And he learned what suffering cost him. This discipline enabled him to identify with us. Philippians chapter 2 makes this point very clearly. It says, quote, Being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, You have to think about this. Jesus, there was no self-seeking in this for Jesus. There was nothing in it for him. There's no aggrandizement for this office that he took on, his office of Messiah, Redeemer, Savior. His offering, which has now resulted in his being our spiritual high priest, this office meant suffering and death. And this shows his great compassion. If he didn't have compassion for us, he wouldn't have gone through that for us. And I have to emphasize that it, he did it for each of us. It is applicable to each of us. It's not just a general blanket thing, even though it covers all mankind, but it is specific in that God knows each of us individually. And the suffering on the cross has a great specificity to do it. He died for my sins. He died for your sins. In verses 9 and 10, he talks about the fourth prerequisite in order to be able to function as a high priest, he had to be a part of a priestly order. And we read in verses 9 and 10, And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. For a descendant of Aaron to be able to serve as high priest, he had to be a descendant of Aaron. He had to be a part of a priestly order. And Jesus is a part of a special priestly order, the order of Melchizedek, which he will discuss fuller beginning in chapter 7, verse 1. But right now, we'll just point out the fact that he functioned in a priestly order. And in verse 9, he talks about the fact that Jesus completed something. It says, having been made perfect. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't always perfect. He always was perfect. What that means is that he completed a goal. He got the job done, having reached the completion of everything he was supposed to do in his earthly life. His suffering was completed on the cross. When Jesus said at the end of it, it is finished, that is exactly the same root that the Hebrew writer is using here for the word perfect. It is completed. It is finished. He says that in John chapter 19, verse 30. That was what Jesus spoke on the cross just before he passed away, just before he died. He willed himself to be physically dead. In Greek, it's the word tetelestai. And it is the word that was used on a completed sentence of a prisoner. That word was written tetelestai across it. It is finished. And Jesus had completed His entire work that took his entire life from conception to resurrection. Jesus had finished it on the cross. That began the new age in which we now live. And in verse 9, he said something really, really important, which I think we need to camp out on for just a minute. It says, having been made perfect, having completed his role, having gotten everything done that needed to be done to have our sins atoned for and to be able to put us right with God. Having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Because Jesus got the job done, he is now the means by which he is the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So what does it mean to obey him? Now, the Old Testament in general and the New Testament specifically spells out, That we cannot be saved by works. After Adam and Eve blew it in the Garden of Eden, humanity has a sin nature and we can't ever live a perfect life. We can't meet the requirements of the law. That is why when God gave the law through Moses, he also had to create a sacrificial system to make atonement for sin because we inevitably sin. The people of the Old Testament, just like we are, were saved by believing that God would forgive them, by believing his promise that he would forgive them. And the atoning sacrifices that they did year in and year out were symbolic acts of understanding that God would cover their sins by them trusting him. And those atoning sacrifices had a role to play. But he also made it clear that there was coming a supreme sacrifice and a perfect one, a God-man who would atone for all of our sins. But the obedience that puts us right with God, the, the obedience that lets us lay claim to what Jesus has done for us and makes him the source of our eternal salvation. And did you notice the word? It's the word eternal salvation. We're talking about something that once we enter it, it will not be taken away from us. It is the obedience of faith. Now, let's look at some passages that make that very, very clear. In John chapter 6, verse 29, the crowd asked Jesus, what must we do to do the works of God? Jesus was saying to them, I'm doing the works of God. Why don't you believe in me? And they were saying, "Okay, well, what do we got to do to do the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God. Now, we need to listen to this very clearly. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. All right. The word faith and the word believe in English are the same word in Greek. It's the Greek word pastuo. It means to be convinced that something is true. It means to trust someone It's put confidence in synonyms like that. So he said, this is the work of God that you put your faith in, that you trust in, that you believe in him who he has sent. Jesus is saying, you have to believe in me. And that's what this The writer of Hebrews is also saying here, because Jesus finished his work, he lived a perfect life, he died on a cross for our sins, and he rose from the dead, he is now the source of salvation to those who obey him, and the obedience is to believe in him, all right? In Acts chapter 6, verse 7, we read these quote, quote, a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Here they demonstrated their obedience to the Messiah by believing in him by trusting in him, by accepting him as Messiah and as their savior. In Romans chapter 1, verse 5, it says, to bring about the obedience of faith. That's why Paul said, I preach the gospel to bring about the obedience of faith. So the obedience that makes us right with God is to believe in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6, verse 17 says, quote, you became obedient from the heart to the form of teaching." to which you were committed. So he said, Paul is saying, because you believed the full content of the good news, you were obedient, you had faith from the heart to the content of the gospel, you were saved. In Romans chapter 16, verses 25 through 27, we read this. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel, and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret from long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the eternal commandment of the eternal God, is made known to all the nations, leading to the obedience of faith. There it is. The thing that lets us lay claim to this salvation, this eternal salvation, this eternal putting us right with God is the obedience of faith. I have to believe the content of what the Bible has revealed about Jesus. And then he has a benediction. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory forever. Amen. In Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, he's talking about the second coming of the Messiah. And when he comes, he will be dealing out retribution to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So I want to just remind myself and remind you as the listener of how important it is that we understand what God is asking us to do in order to be put right with him. What he is asking us to do is to be convinced that it's true that Jesus is his son. That the New Testament is an accurate historical record. That the Bible in general is an accurate historical record of God's communication of himself to us. That we are sinners. That we have a problem. The events described in Genesis are true, historically true. That really happened. And the events that are described throughout the Old Testament of man's rebellion against God and God's reaching out to man and creating a process of redemption for man to bring a savior into the world. All of that happened historically in time space history. And then, according to the Gospels, Jesus was conceived of a virgin. God was his father. Mary was his mother. And Jesus grew up a Jewish young man of the tribe of Judah, qualified to be the Messiah. He lived a perfect life. He didn't sin in thought, word, or deed. That's the message of the Gospels. And then he died on a cross for our sins. And the aftermath of that, it is explained that his death was a vicarious death for our sins. It was a total, absolute miscarriage of spiritual and political justice. Jesus summarized every evil thing that has ever happened on earth by the innocent, absolutely sinless son of God being executed for something he did not do, a crime he did not commit, and being declared by the presiding judge innocent three times of the charges against him. Nevertheless, he was killed anyway because men rejected him as the Messiah and they just wanted him dead. So in that life, death, and then a subsequent glorious resurrection. God has answered us. And his answer is, I love you. I became a human being. I did what you cannot do. And now I have made it possible for you to be right with me. And here's what I ask for you to do. God is speaking. God says, what I'm asking you to do is to believe that this is true. Be convinced that this is true in your heart. Invite me in. The New Testament says in another place, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Pray and ask Christ to enter your life if you've not done so. And receive this gift of grace. He's really there. Prayer is not conversation to thin air. Prayer is talking to God. And we can talk to God in Jesus' name. And when we trust in Him. And we believe that this gospel, that this good news is true then we become part of a forgiven family. And Jesus does then at that point become the source of eternal salvation because we have obeyed by believing him. May God richly bless you.